Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome. You're listening to Living Free um, on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, my name's Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be talking about alcoholism and the family disease. I'd like to welcome Joy and Linda to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Um, uh, they're members of Al-Anon Family Groups, and they're going to share their experience of living with alcoholism and how Al-Anon helps them. Uh, now, our show um, concentrates on the family disease uh, of alcoholism, plus we also talk about drugs, so we talk to Narcotics Anonymous members, and we also talk to Gamblers Anonymous members. So Al-Anon is typically the first week of the month, um, and so today we'll be focusing on living with a problem drinker, or as we like to call them, alcoholics. Um, so I guess I'll start with you, um, Joy. Um, so what usually we talk about what life was like, what happened, and what life's like now. So to start off with, what, what was it like growing up? So I understand your dad was an alcoholic. Yes, dad was a chronic alcoholic by the time I was born. So I was the number five in a family of uh, 11 children, and um, dad was chronic. So I never knew him as anything else but a serious alcoholic. But he was functioning. He worked. He held down a job, and it was quite amazing, really. But the family was full of chaos, so um, and there was uncertainty and instability, and Mum was so absorbed with the worry of it all and the poverty that we were subjected to. And Dad was also a gambler, and he was a bit of philanderer as well. So <laughs> she didn't get she didn't choose well, really. And um, so there was always chaos. And, and as a child, you always felt very uh, unsafe and insecure, and certainly not emotionally supported. So that was. Pretty depressive, really. Yeah. So where did you fit in the 11 kids? I'm number five. Okay, right in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> I diddle diddle. But I, I became very overly responsible and certainly tried to please mum and help things. So I became a grown-up very young, very young. Decided I was going to fix everything. Right, okay. Yeah, I think that's what um, people-pleasing and controlling are very closely linked. And I think if you feel you're in control, you feel that things will work out. But that doesn't always happen, does it? Absolutely not, no. My mother became very dependent on me very young. I left home at 14 and uh, there was a scenario at home, yet another one, and my girlfriend who lived nearby had saw me a little bit after that and she said, your mother said if you were here, you would have known what to do. <laughs> I mean, how bizarre. It's quite, you know, I look back on that now and I think that's quite bizarre. Yeah. So <laughs> what was your dad like? What was his drinking like? Dad's drinking was predominantly beer and when he drank beer... He was a happy drunk, but mum would incite the arguments because she was so frustrated with him. Um, and I always felt that if she just shut up, and some of my brothers and sisters also used to engage aggressively with him. But when he drank whiskey, he was aggressive. And the irony of it was I was so alert and constantly on guard that I knew by just walking down the footpath of our house whether he'd been drinking alcohol with whiskey or beer. So I was ready, always ready for the onslaught. 
<laughs> we used to grab the plates out of the cupboard and run down <laughs> to the bungalow because mum would throw them. Yeah. She would hurl them and we'd have no plates. <laughs> so here we were sitting on the beds in the bungalow with these packs of plates waiting for the turmoil or the argument to end so then we'd put the plates back <laughs> and nobody ever talked about it as kids yeah. we never talked about it. we just did it yeah yeah it's funny isn't it, <laughs> it is. yeah so um when did the pressure rise on you then yeah, was at what point you know did it start becoming a, a problem to you emotionally a problem for me well leaving home and thinking that i left the problem behind me and being a very high functioning working, achieving, determined person. The problems for me started early in that I became very driven and full of anxiety, but I really didn't. I didn't know myself well enough to even know what was happening. Right. Mm. So the problems for me emotionally started quite young, but I, I was mostly in confusion, Bill. I didn't really know what was happening. I just knew that there had to be something I was not doing right and then my life would become happy. Yeah. So I pursued a sense of happiness, but I've, it eluded me. Yeah, it often does, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Linda, so how about you? How did, um, how did growing up, I think your dad was an alcoholic as well. Indeed he was. He was, a, he was an alcoholic and, uh, and he was a gambler as well. Yep. Um, and uh, it was, um, it was it, I, I recall that... Um, you know, often there were references made to my father. You know, you're, he's such an alcoholic, or you're an alcoholic, or, and um, you know, you're a little kid growing up. What, what does that mean? Who knows what that means? Because everybody in the neighbourhood, all the family, all the friends, they all drank. They all drank. That's that's what you did. So, um, but um, I, I knew that um, in my family of origin that. Uh, that there was absolutely a focus of uh, his drinking and his behaviours um, dominated the interactions of the family. Yeah. So, um, how did you cope as a child? Did you, you know, did you isolate or did you have plenty of friends? What was your? How did you cope with having this dysfunctional family? Um, well, I I think you know I, I didn't cope. I didn't cope. I was a crazy little kid and. Uh, I um I would uh, I was very isolated within the family unless um, I was needed to step up and um, entertain and bring joy to um, my mother who would have actually qualified um, for this program. But you know I, I know that um, that was a role I played for all the members in my family. That um, you know I, I was cared about, accepted, loved, as long as um, I was light and bouncing and dancing and funny. And um, it, was, uh, it was exhausting. But other than that, uh, I would go to school and I would come home and I would be sat in front of the TV. I, I have no memories of having, um, you know, a treat or a play lunch or, you know, after school or... Um, you know, I, I I have some memories of some connection visiting fruit because kids played out in the street in those days. That's yeah. what you did. Yeah. But um, generally, I, I um, particularly in the winter months, summer, we were we would be taken down the beach at about seven o'clock in the morning before my dad went to work. He had his own business, and um, 
you know, if we weren't at school, we were plopped at the beach until six or seven o'clock at night, which I didn't have a problem with. I loved it. But winter was very difficult because I was very isolated. I didn't find it easy to fit with the other kids in the neighbourhood and uh, my parents or any other family members certainly certainly didn't encourage or model that or uh, introduce me to other ways of socialising and networking in the neighbourhood. So it was me and the TV. Right, right. So um, your your dad drank, but you found it difficult with your mum as well. So that didn't leave you a lot. So did you have any uh, siblings? Yeah, I have a, I have an older brother. Uh, he's older by 12 years. He was to my mother's first marriage, um, but his father had abandoned him when he was, um, I think he was a year old, maybe three years old, and uh, there's 12 years between my older brother and myself. And uh, I have a younger brother who was um, four years younger. So really my my older brother when we were little kids at home he was he was my big brother and he actually was the person that i felt that i could trust the most sort of a parent yeah, he yeah. was he yeah. was um and if not a parent he was certainly um a best friend and and i remember going on dates with his girlfriends to the drive-in and things yeah. <laughs> not always but it was a big deal if you got to do that yeah so. sounds good <laughs> so joy um you said you left home at 14. That must have been pretty amazing. Yes, it was. When I think about it now, I look at the 14-year-old girls now and I think, oh, my God, I was really young. <laughs> um, yes, I started boarding, boarding when I was 14. and um, So you must have stopped school, did you, at the point? Yes, I did. Yeah. I left school. I did a deal with my mother and I'd, I had been working for a few months and I'd said to Mum, if I, if I get a job, I'll pay you £5 <laughs> A week run board, and I was getting seven pound ten. I remember, so you know, I was quite manipulative. And and my father was of the opinion, "You're a girl; you didn't need to have an education. So you're only going to get married and have children." So there was a very yeah. you know, sexist very idea lax, there. Yeah, very lax approach. Wasn't yeah, it? so I um, so no, I boarded, and I I I became. I was very very. Um, I was a survivor, and I lied about my age, and I got. I worked in departments where I could um, go up the rungs pretty quickly and because I was a hard-working, high-achieving, manic workaholic, um, employers loved me. So, um, yeah, I, I, I carved a life for myself very early um, and became very successful. I grew up in poverty and I was determined I was not going to be living in poverty. So. Yeah. So um, successful at work, but how about relationships? What was it like growing up having come from an alcoholic family? Well, my ability to have relationships and communicating in a healthy way was non-existent. So I continually hit brick walls there. And I think I was still constantly looking for that emotional support that I didn't get as a child, but I didn't really realise I was doing that then. So I expected a great deal from the men I met, and it was not appropriate. Um, I also chose men that were emotionally unavailable. So it was a double-edged sword, and I had the concept of, well, if I do more, if I do enough, then they'll need me, and then they'll love me. So I really didn't have a, a sense of enough love for self 
or uh, that I was lovable as I was. So I had this thing where I would do a lot for someone, but there was always a hidden agenda that then you're going to love me. But, of course, that didn't come to fruition. I mean, I can unravel this now clearly, but at the time it was not clear that what my motives were and what my agendas were. So you got married and had a kid. I did. I got married at 18 and um, I had a little boy at the age of 24. And uh, and by 26 I was divorced, so I had this beautiful boy that's um, now a big grown-up man. But um, that marriage did fail and then I pursued... I was working for myself by this stage, running my own businesses and um, I pursued a career and to, to be the best mum I could be. So my son had the best. He had the best education, the best opportunities. He travelled with me. Um, all of the things that you know I thought were very important, and um, but the reality was that I was a, a cake that wasn't properly cooked on the inside <laughs> myself. So how can I give somebody something that if if I don't have it? And um, I was very high, had very high expectations of my son, and um, sadly by the time he was eight, he had a quite a st- a chronic stutter and he was a placid child and a very gentle child and I didn't have the capacity to process his needs properly. I just wanted him to be a certain way. And so I did a lot of damage in my ignorance. I can say that today without having the shame and guilt attached to it but by the time I started looking in recovery I I crawled into the rooms of Al-Anon with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. Right. Okay. Thanks. Um... So, Linda, you, um, I think you left school early as well, mm. but it was different. Uh, th- there was deals, bargains, <laughs> <laughs> things being um, um, agreed to. I, um, I had a, a, a really difficult time at primary school and, um, you know, there was, I know now uh, why, why that was, but uh, I, was, I was just a terminally anxious, afraid no capacity to um, relate to other kids and um, and certainly no capacity to relate to the nuns that were no. <laughs> um, there. And uh, by the time I got to high school, uh, I did um, I was in Form 1 and um, I got glandular fever when I was 13 and uh, I was so happy. I was relieved that I got glandular fever because it meant that I no longer had to go to school and endure that chronic sense of uh, not fitting in, not belonging, not being able to achieve uh, in the classroom with my academic studies, um, not not being able to find a place where I could thrive. So for me, getting glandular fever was a get-out-of-jail card, and, and I was thrilled. So uh, I was home for about a year with glandular fever, and then when I was 14, uh, I had to either return to school or I could go and work for my father in his business. He was a successful businessman. And um, I thought, well, this is a good deal. I will go, I will work, and I will earn money. And uh, I happily agreed to that. Right. So, how did that progress? Did you um, did you? How long did you stay working for your dad? <laughs> well, it, I finished my apprenticeship. It was an apprenticeship based um, uh, career, and uh, so I finished my apprenticeship. I did very well at that. 
um, you know, as as is often says, I, I was a high achiever, and um, and I think now not just simply because I wanted to achieve to to uh, impress other people, but I I I think that one of my um, survival skills. Uh, which is what I've learned in Eleanor, is to look at the things that you use to survive and look at them in a positive light. And one of my survival skills was to have an innate curiosity and uh, engagement of things. And so I, I was actually successful in that business. But at the same time, I thought, I don't want to be doing this. I really don't want to be doing this. So when I finished my apprenticeship, I I told my father that I was no longer going to work for him. I still remember that day. I my heart you could see it pounding <laughs> through my jumper, and uh, I left. I left uh, working with him, and I started um, doing other work, bar work, waitressing. I even picked potatoes at one stage. But, yeah, anything I could do to get money. Right. So did that mean leaving home as well? Yeah, when yeah. I when I uh, turned 18, um, so I, I worked. I worked in a lot of resorts, ski resorts and down the coast and things like that. And, um, you know, it was kind of – was, it was very sort of – kind of a bit of a gypsy life, which they certainly didn't approve of. But um, anyway, I didn't care. And uh, when, I, uh, when I turned 18, I just went, okay, that's it. I'm done. It's been great. Not really. But I am going. Right. And I took off and uh, moved out of home. Right. Okay. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. Um, I'm pleased to be able to advise that we are now podcasting our shows and we have 13 recent episodes available on the Living Free webpage, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash Living Free. And they're also on iTunes. I'll be podcasting each new show and also progressively including our earlier shows as time permits. You can contact us at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com if you want to ask a question or comment on the show. Now, at this point in the show, we often do um, announcements as well. Uh, and there's one that's probably particularly relevant this time. is uh, It's about a medically supervised injecting centre. And as you probably know, the, um, the uh, Victorian government or the Victorian parliament is, um, is reviewing that now. And it looks very positive uh, that we'll have a similar outcome to what has been implemented in Sydney and has been working in Sydney for, I think, 17 years. Uh, on Monday the 13th of November uh, at 6pm at the North Richmond Community Health Centre, 23 Lennox Street, uh, there's a Canadian Senator, Larry Campbell, um, and he's visiting Australia, sponsored by the Australian Drug Reform Law Reform Foundation. And so you can come and learn about um, his experiences where, about establishing medically supervised injecting centres in Canada, how they save lives, how they provide rehabilitation services, how they improve public amenity for the community, how they enhance the commercial environment for local business, and how they take the pre- pressure off emergency services and save us all money. Uh, if you'd like to know more about that, you can go to the Victorian Victoria Street Drug Solutions uh, webpage um, and look at their events. I'm speaking with Joy and Linda about the family disease of alcoholism. Um, and we've, we've been talking about growing up in an alcoholic family and the sorts of uh, pressures that puts on you. And we're now going to 
move on and talk about what it's like, you know, going through your 20s and 30s and facing, I guess, the issues that come up from um, being, I guess, unable to cope in a normal society, having grown up in a family with alcoholism. But, um, yeah, you face a lot of different issues when you've come out of an alcoholic family. So, Joy, what's it like sort of moving out of home and trying to establish a, quote, normal life when you're not really experienced in that? Well, I think I learnt to observe lots of other people and take on patterns of behaviour and um, learnt a lot from from those people. So I was very vigilant about watching and learning. Um, so I learnt by, by looking and thought that I had a problem with learning so in, an, in, a, in a normal environment. So I tended to be very visual with how I shaped myself. And I was a great one for fitting in, so I was a bit of a chameleon. So if the general consensus went a certain way, that's how I would fit. So I really didn't have an opinion, but I moulded myself in these groups that I wanted to fit into. I was very good at um, service-orientated roles, so customer relations and things like that were very good for me because I, I was capable of giving a lot of myself, probably too much. And... Um, and the driven, the driven desire to succeed was really powerful. But relationships were a major issue, even with females, because I would develop a friendship with a girl and it would be very enmeshed. And if they disappointed me, well, then I would be devastated. Yeah. So I didn't have the understanding of what a healthy relationship looked like. Yeah. And I didn't get that you, know, you can accept people warts and all and... and, and and have acceptance around people's personality types. So I had lots of immature ideas about relationships and certainly found it very hard to have relationships with men. Mm. So developing a relationship, a healthy relationship with my son was was pretty much on the cards to be a bit of a disaster when I think about it. Um, So did you marry again? Yeah, I married, um, my son was eight when I remarried, but I married a man who had four children and, of course, it was a huge challenge, but I thought I could handle it. So I didn't have any real process, ability to process that reality of how hard that was going to be and how hard it was going to be on my son as well. Okay, yeah. So in reality, I I wasn't really thinking very well at all about that and it certainly was challenging and when my son got into his teens and started to really rebel and pick up his own addictions, um, that became a nightmare, absolute nightmare. Right. And my relationship with my husband had deteriorated to the point where we had very little communication. Um, I was almost indifferent towards him, which was quite scary. Yeah. Yeah. I've often heard the opposite of love is not hate it's indifference and yeah i think that's it's the indifference that kills you mm. yeah uh linda so you left you left home after your apprenticeship and what did you do next what was your next activity out of home okay so i um yeah i just kind of uh floated around in the world doing anything that kind of came my way i um i was I was very directionless and uh, 
I didn't have ambition and I think that um, I was happy to go with with whatever was going on around me, with what anybody else was doing around me, but, you know, uh, not happy about that because uh, I just... I just I never felt connected to myself. And um, anyway, I... I um, Returned to studies when I was 23, so it was 10 years since I'd been at school. And I went to, I was accepted into um, um, a very um, prestigious art course in Melbourne at the time. And um, I, I, you know, to this day, I, you know, I just thought I was doing a really long hobby course. <laughs> and um, I had no, because I did not come from an academic background, and um, I certainly uh, had no. Uh, concept of what um, universities were or anything like that but I didn't care you know what I was getting to do the the thing that I loved doing and that was the one thing that I felt um, allowed me a um, uh, to be an interloper actually in other people's lives and uh, but it was it was my greatest passion and uh, so I did that I completed uh, university after three years and uh, you know I I had a, it was impo- it was just so difficult. It was such a difficult time in my life actually when I was at university. I know that uh, I suffered from chronic depression, chronic chronic depression uh, that would just feel endless, particularly in the winter months, and um, that confusion of you know well what is going on with my family? Why don't I have a connection with my family? I spend a lot of time being the one that would go down and visit my family, go visit my mother, ring them up, find out what was going on. But there was that was never returned to to my journey in life, and um, it was just I just lived in that feeling of what what is the matter with my family? What is going on? And what is the matter with me? It you know what? Actually, it's my fault. I I have done something. It must be me, and I just live with that sense of it all being on me, and that it was my fault, and I was the one who was the problem. Mm, yeah, total confusion. Yeah, I get it. Um, so, did you? So you said you did. Uh, I think it was an art degree. Yeah, arts degree. Yeah. So did you start becoming doing that line of work? Did you then? Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I was really very, so very, very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And um, I, uh, I, had, uh, I had three solo exhibitions and I was um, exhibiting with a very prominent gallery in Melbourne. And, I mean, I really actually had no idea what was going on around me because I was behinding a, hiding behind a whole lot of other um, strategies failed many of them were um, trying to support myself because uh, the area that I that I um, worked in um, actually required me to be um, um, quite um, isolated at times but I also needed to be able to network and socialize and uh, I didn't have the capacity no. to live in either of those states and so it was just a constant flip-flopping between um, between personalities, yeah. between states, you know, I, I I just had no idea who I was or or where in the mix of those two states I was supposed to fit in, and um, so I, I did that for a couple of years, and um, and very grateful, and it was an extraordinary journey, and uh, then I uh, 
I had my daughter when I was 30 years old and uh, it was, in my mind, it was the greatest gift that was ever bestowed upon me. Actually, I had uh, we had to shift the opening night um, <laughs> a few times because we weren't quite sure when she was going to come and, um, you know, she was running a little bit late. Apparently that still goes on today. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was great to have my first child because it gave me a focus. It gave me a reason for living. And I was absolutely going to be the best parent that uh, ever existed. And I was not going to do to her what was done to me and my family. But you, I understand you still had very high anxiety and you needed something to relieve that. So how did that progress yeah yeah i um it i did i was um i I was such an anxious kid and um a a terrified kid you know i just lived in a constant state of fear because i i had that hyper vigilance that comes from growing up in the family of alcoholism um my older brother had done uh two tours of Vietnam so he was actually the rock for me when I was a little girl growing up and um, when he when he was older he was 12 years older than me he left the family so I felt very abandoned by him Um, and um, I just tried to hang on to life and uh, you know I had um, my um, drugs of choice that I used to go to and uh, I didn't experience what my friends used to complain about when they used, um, you know, that drug of choice. For me, it was like going on a holiday in my head. (laughs) I was relieved. It was like I have found the answer and I can just do this and I can just forget about anything and everything and I, I felt very at one with myself. It was my preferred state. But, um, you know, it, um, yeah, it had consequences and uh, I had to, uh, yeah, I had to start doing something about that because uh, it stopped working for me in right. a very big way. <laughs> right. okay. Uh, so, Joy, um, you've got a 13-year-old son who's starting to be a problem to you. So what's happening in his life? He's picked up um, marijuana and alcohol. Oh, right, yep. So... Uh, and the divine, the personality change was massive, and he hated me, and he would not wash, and he would not. He was failing at school, and the um, the teachers were saying, "You know, you're, I'm wasting my money sending him to this private school." <laughs> um, and I was just beside myself. He would go off and not come home. And I would spend the whole night worrying where he was, going, looking for him. Um, it was just like a nightmare. This nightmare had begun and it did not have any respite. It was just constant. And I was so enmeshed with him and connected. And, I, I mean, his body language was would tell me exactly what mood he was in. And, you know, I would promise myself I wasn't going to get into an argument with him, but invariably it would happen. And I was pulled into this whole dynamic of this crazy tug of war with him. And I liken it to having like a stallion that, that wants to bolt and you're trying to hold that stallion back. Yeah, just little you. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So, And he knew me so well. He knew mm. me so well. He knew that if he you – know, he knew how to um, manipulate me. Mm. 
we had had this incredibly close relationship, especially the eight years that he and I were together um, on our own. Prior to me remarrying, was, we were incredibly close. So um, it was a really difficult time for me. And it was the one time when my armour sort of got the crack in it. You know, the self-sufficient, competent business person who, you know, on the outside looked absolutely fine, had the lovely home, had the lovely car and ticked all the boxes and I was a mess. So that um, that crack in the armour sort of brought me right to my knees. Yeah, so I suppose it would have presented itself at work if... If anything, if you lost, if you lost control, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'd had a really difficult weekend with my son up in the snowfields, and um, I found him in a room completely with strangers, completely gone for all money. And I remember walking in the snow that night and just being so upset. And coming home, driving home, just cancelled the whole weekend, and just you know drove home with him and his cousin, and um, and that. That weekend I went, it was Queen's birthday weekend, and I went to work on the Tuesday and the girl who worked with me, she had been in Ellen a long, long time and, and she had said to me, you know, in casual conversation, you know, you qualify for Ellen on, you know, you're an adult child, your father's alcoholic. I said, oh, really? And it sort of went right over my head like oh, that was a million years ago and there was no connection for me. But this particular incident I was so distressed and when I went into work normally I was able to put on my mask and I could hide pretty much every emotion that was going on but this day I obviously couldn't and she said my god what happened to you and she just supported me as I crashed and cried and then she said you're coming with me tonight (laughs) so so she pulled me in her car and took me to my first Al-Anon meeting wow and I'm forever grateful to that woman. Yes, yeah, it's good, isn't it, when you find, when somebody actually takes care of you, um, yeah. because you, you go for a long time where you don't think anybody really cares for you. Yeah, and to have somebody do that, that's good. Yeah. Um, so, what was it like, just sort of coming into Alan? Did you feel at home? Oh, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I was <laughs> listening to these people tell these stories about growing up in homes and. A lot of wives talking about their husbands and I could relate to my mother and and what she must have felt with dad and what my dad was like. And it was like I was reclaiming my past. It was, I'd realised I'd pushed it all down and pushed it all down. And over the years I'd been to a few professionals who had said to me, you know, what was your childhood like, Cheryl? And I'd say, (laughs) well, that was then and this is now. And, And, you know, I left home at 14, so it's got nothing to do with now, but of course... That's what I had to do. I had to go back and reclaim the truth of it all. And um, the most beautiful thing was that when I did speak, I was heard. Mm. And I understood that I was suffering from an illness. And I I knew there was something wrong. All my life I felt there was something wrong. But I never knew what it was and then when people talked about alcoholism the family disease and how it affects everybody I put a label to my illness I could identify this is what's wrong with me and there is a way out of it I felt relieved but I allowed the the meetings were such that it also allowed me to 
absolutely get rid of my crusty exterior and fall into this emotional... Um, it was like an emotional cushion for me and I was allowed to be exposed. I was, ex- I was allowed to expose my vulnerability. That was fantastic. I'd never done that in my life. Mm. Never. And people would be... <laughs> I'd never have a hanky and people would be handing <laughs> handkerchiefs or tissues to me. And uh, I remember one darling, darling, darling woman who had a daughter who had the same problem as me, but she'd come in as a wife of, and she was just so kind to me. And she would talk to me after the meetings and just be so gentle. And it was nothing specific, but it was the gentleness and generosity of spirit that mm. um, was beautiful, really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's lovely, isn't it? Uh, you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Slash streaming. Um, so we're talking with Joy and Linda about growing up in an alcoholic family and also having children who develop alcoholism as well. So um, I guess, Linda, you, you had a daughter um, and while you've you know, developed your life, your daughter's been developing her life too. So what, what happened in her life that caused you problems? Um, really it wasn't actually, uh, she was, uh, well, that was just, that was just an extraordinary journey. So it was an extraordinary journey. And, uh, she's, um, you know, I am so profoundly grateful that she has, uh, eight years clean and sober and, um, and I had no idea (laughs) what was going on. Uh, it was, it was her and I. Um, growing up together, trying to grow, hanging on to each other. I'm just trying to do the best I could as a mother, and uh, and I, w- I was very lucky. I was able to do a lot of things that uh, my family and my parents were unable to do for me. And um, she was she was doing the best she could, and but it was hard. It was really tough. But we we were very very close, as was said earlier, and. Um, yeah, I adored her and she adored me. And then when she got into high school and her later years in high school, I was just watching her going through this emotional roller coaster ride. And uh, because I, I also had worked in the education department, I thought, well, this is normal. And part of the course, she's doing year 10, 11, 12. This is, this is, I think this is, is this normal? There was a lot of things going on in my mind, but I just kept trying to hand it over and have the faith that all was just doing what it was doing and uh, I was in recovery and doing the best I could and um, she came to me when she was uh, probably about 17. She'd come to me on two or three occasions and on the third occasion she'd she'd come to me on a Saturday morning and uh, had said to me, she was dead, as soon as I looked at her I could see that she was not well and she said, Mum, I've got a problem with drinking. I can't stop drinking. And she sat on the floor with me and we we're in front of the heater. And I just went, wow. And then promptly burst into laughter as she did um, because uh, we, we knew what was going on. 
and I took her to her first meeting on the Monday night and she's been in recovery. So that's AA? Ever since yeah. AA, yep, yeah. she's been in. And uh, she, she got involved in that program right from the beginning. Uh, she got herself a sponsor, she got sponsors, she did a lot and to this day still does a lot of service work and uh, wow, how extraordinary because I, I had... I had no concept and I would go to meetings and I would hear her share and I would think, what, what, what you did what, when? <laughs> and uh, really that was my turning point. So and, you had no um, idea she was an alcoholic? Zero. Wow. Zero. Having grown up with alcoholism and you had no, in, yeah, I it's know. incredible, isn't it? It's it, cunning. Incredible. Baffling. Yeah. Yep. I just, I, I presume she had drinking nights but I really, I actually did not put, you know, those things together because uh, we had a pact that we would always be honest with each other and I thought, you know, she'd already dealt with a lot of trauma in our lives. So I thought there was this wonderful nest of <laughs> honesty and, you know, no, that's not what was going on at all. And she actually was uh, doing it really tough on uh, multiple um, different types of drugs and, and yeah. alcohol. Right. Uh, yeah. So at what point did you realise that alcoholism, the family disease, had affected you? you know, wh- at what point did you think that maybe you needed to look at something about you? I, I always had that sense that there was something wrong with me and I always thought it was just me. Then I learned that uh, it's the family disease and um, I, when my daughter... Uh, when my daughter got sober, um, I, I first actually heard of Al-Anon uh, about 12, oh, pro- no, probably about 14 or 15 years ago now. And I remember somebody in AA, a woman who'd been around about 28 years, she said to me after breakfast one morning, she said, you, you need to go to Al-Anon. You would love Al-Anon. Al-Anon would be good for you. And I'm thinking, what is Al-Anon? And she always talked about Al-Anon as the program with heart. <laughs> right, <laughs> and uh, I did. I went into the rooms of Alanon. I went into one meeting, and I sat through that meeting. I lost a few teeth, <laughs> gritting, and uh, I thought, "No, I'm not doing this." And I left, and I didn't go back for another three years. And that was uh, uh, over seven years ago. And I haven't left. I'm not leaving ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, once you realise it's good for you, it's very hard to leave, isn't it? Uh, It is. uh, It has absolutely uh, been extraordinary. I learned about the family disease in those rooms. Yeah, and your part in it. That's that's and my part in it. That was the bit that was not so good to hear about. (laughs) That's the bit I learned. Yeah. Uh, So Cheryl, coming into Alanon, you um, you found that. It gave you a different way to approach life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. how did how did things improve with your son? Well, understanding he he was really ill, and this was a, a disease that's diagnosed by the World Health Organization. It's not a fantasy thing. It's not a deliberate act. His addiction had been triggered by a predisposition to be like this. So. But there was a big part for me to play. I had to stop trying to micromanage. I had to start allowing him to suffer the consequences of his own actions. 
And that was via using a wonderful pamphlet in Alan called Detachment. And I remember holding on to that like you wouldn't believe, and there was another small card, a Just For Today card, that gave you simple suggestions, simple things to do. And it's a simple program for very complicated people. And so I had to make it simple. So setting boundaries and detachment, knowing that if I set a boundary, I had to have the courage to action that boundary if it was violated. Yeah. And Eleanor gave me that sort of roadmap and, and some sort of structure to work around to learn how to love my son and detach from the disease. Yeah. And that was very different to my pattern of behaviour in relationships. I was a cutter and a burner. Right. Yeah. I couldn't cut and burn from my son. No. <laughs> so um, did, you, um, did you have to – did he have to get into AA to – make you happy or not well that was my dream yeah um but i realized that i was powerless over that decision and um his recovery was not my happiness could not be dependent on his recovery and as long as i was waiting for him to get well i was going to continue to get very sick so the greatest gift i could give um, my son was to take responsibility for my own life and, and get on with having a good life he was carrying enough shame and pain around his own addiction. He didn't need to watch his mother falling in a heap and and yeah. laying guilt on him and mm-hmm. laying shame. So I needed to grow up myself and, and start to heal. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the good thing about Alan is people, people will listen to your story, which helps you get it into perspective. And you hear other people's stories and you sort mm-hmm. of think, well my dad wasn't quite as bad as that or my son wasn't quite as bad as that. But it was bad because it's very difficult to cope with. But you realise it could have been a lot worse. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. He um, he um, could have been into heroin, for goodness sake. I yep. mean, yeah, the whole cycle is so insidious and how far does one go? And, you know, today we have ice and all these horrendous things. So... Um, it's it's really accepting that I'm totally, totally powerless and a, a mother who's a control freak, that's really hard yeah. to come to terms with. <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay. Um, so, Linda, what's what's it like now for you, being in Al-Anon and just being free of obsession, I guess, with your daughter? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey. It's a journey. It's continuing. Uh, really, my focus um, of growth was um, working through my family of origin stuff. Yep. And because my daughter was in program and she had a program and she worked that program and uh, I really didn't have to give too much time or attention to that. And... Um, then, uh, you know, I noticed that there were little hiccups along the way that I was able to, you know, or spot fires that I could um, work my program around and put out. But um, I think that, um, you know, what I hear in Al-Anon is that it is a journey and more will be revealed. And, um, you know, my daughter is... Uh, is uh, also suffering from the family disease of alcoholism. 
and uh, she and I need to really work on our program. For me, at this point in in my journey, um, after seven years, it's a it's a new beginning. It's a new journey, and um, and I I absolutely love it, and I am so grateful. Even on those days where I think, wow, really, this is no, I don't want to be doing more work, and. Um, yeah, but recovery is a journey and uh, I think that learning about detachment, enmeshment, boundaries, um, that that's that emotional maturity comes from understanding those concepts and learning how to apply them in your life. And what I know is that Al-Anon is a program for me, not not for me to, you know, be using against my daughter or other friends or yeah. relatives. Yeah. The program's for me to focus on me and my recovery and yeah. my emotional maturity. Yep. Mm. That's good. Okay. Um, well, we're coming up towards the end of the show. Um, and at this point, we usually um, thank people for coming in. So I'd like to thank you both, uh, Joy and Linda, for coming in to um, 3CR today to share your story of Alan on recovery. Thank you for having us. Oh, grateful. Lovely to be here. Thank yeah. you. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from a gambling addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Gamblers Anonymous. Now, at this point, we usually do an intro to the um, Black Noise Radio, but unfortunately today, Kerry Lee can't make it. So we have a pre-recorded program and we'll kick that off um, at the end of the show. Um, but just to... Take us out. Um, f- I'll just play a short song. So, uh, Can I just mention, oh, Bill, yeah. sorry, yeah. that we have a new group opened in Elnon for parents who are coping with children. Oh, right. And it's very new. It's only been operating for about six weeks. It's in Glen Huntley. And uh, you'll certainly see it on our website for um, the details. Okay. Well, I'll... Um also, I meant to mention, if you want to contact Alan and family groups, uh, if you think Alan could help you or someone else, uh, then you can phone one three hundred two five two six six six, or to go online at alanon.org.au. Um, okay, well, we're just about at that point. So, um, yeah, it's it's been great having you on the show, and um, I think we'll take it out now. Thank you. Thank you.